Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources, and I'm here today with Dr. Joe Gay. Doctor is a clinical psychologist, a licensed chemical dependence professional, as well as the executive director of his agency, which is Health Recovery Services in Athens, Ohio. So, doctor, welcome. Thank you. So, doctor, you're part of a series, a podcast that we're doing that we're calling After Dreamland. And we're interviewing a, a number of the people that were really... Uh, a big help to Sam Quinones. Great. I enjoyed working with Sam, and I'm happy to have this opportunity to talk about what we've seen. So let's start with, boy, let's start with what you've witnessed here as far as the opioid epidemic is concerned. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, let me go back to before the epidemic. And in this area of the state, um, opiate addiction was practically unknown. Here and there, we would see a person, have a person come to us for treatment who had received a prescription for opiates, ended up overusing their medication, uh, then began trying, typically by altering a prescription, trying to get more medication and getting in trouble and coming to us. Um, That wasn't a very common admission to our services, but we... It happened now and then. So they would get a, a prescription legally first. Yeah. And yeah, then the for doctor. legitimate in injury. Yeah. And the doctor would get a sense that they're really drug seeking their next time around yeah. and, and uh, they wouldn't prescribe again. So at that or point. Or something. Or they just needed more. The doctor might keep prescribing, but they mm-hmm. needed more than was being prescribed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Happened in different ways. Okay. Here and there, we would also see a nurse who had got, had access to the medication through their work started usually stealing it and then got in trouble. And so, we again, a few of them. That back around 2000, 2000. 2001. There were doctors who got in trouble too, but most of them went to high-dollar rehabs. They didn't come to see us. But anyway, so, but this was just a trickle of cases. Um, Heroin addiction was practically unknown in this area. It was a rare and exotic disorder. Now, I used to, at one time before I was um, 
in Athens and in this field. I worked at a medical school and we would see these various disorders that were rare and exotic. There were, I worked in a neurology department. There were cases that out of maybe 2,000 people I'd seen, I'd only seen one of these, this particular disorder. And that's how rare heroin addiction was in this area. Wow. I mean, if we, I can remember admitting a woman with heroin addiction was admitted to our women's program and I made special trips there to talk to her because I wanted to know more about heroin addiction because obviously it's a very serious addiction, but it was something I never got to see. So you couldn't study so, anybody. You had your yeah, one patient yeah, to study. Yeah, yeah. And so that's how <laughs> rare it was. And it, it remained that way up until maybe 2005, we started seeing more people with addictions to prescription drugs and, but not in huge numbers, but more enough that there was, I would say, a steady flow of such people. In 2000 and late in 2007, a person asked me who had worked in another county asked me, are you seeing any heroin? And I told him, well, no, this is Appalachia. We just don't see heroin here. I said, I'll talk to my counselors, but I don't, as far as I know, we don't see it. And I talked to the counselors and they said, here and there a case, Dr. Gay, which would have been an increase if it was here and there a case, but this is not very much. Two months later, that was in around November of 2007. In February of 2008, my counselors came back to me and said, Dr. Gay, you jinxed us. We're seeing heroin all the time. Oh. And I, so I started just that quickly, just months in two months. Yeah. And I, I looked at our data then, um, a month or so after that. And I saw that we'd gone, we operated four clinics then across our four clinics up until that time in the months through maybe the year 2007, we'd seen maybe two cases a month, which again is a big increase over what was sure. being seen before, but yeah. still. Out Not of huge. four or five hundred cases a year we were admitting wasn't that many and of just all problems. And then we went from two cases a month to six cases a month in a period of two months. And it's just gotten worse ever since. Mm. So how many cases per month do you see now? Um, I would say we've expanded 20, 40, 50 probably. Okay. Our admissions reflect data that the states accumulated across all the counties. I don't want to talk too specifically about what happens here, mm -hmm. but across the whole state, um, they've gone from about 7% of the admissions to the state drug and alcohol treatment system being opiate related to 38%. Wow. And in counties that are particularly hard hit, like Scioto County, the percentage of um, clients with opiate dependence who are admitted is up 60% or higher. Um, and we're not quite that high, but we're up there. For every one client who came in in 2000 with an opiate problem, we see 50 now. Wow. Huh. That's huge. Yeah. It exploded. Yeah. So, and you got with a statistician in Columbus. Arman Hall. Is yes. that who you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Actually, the numbers I've first studied that really struck me came from the Ohio Department of Health. 
Okay. They'd been, they had been publishing data. As I said, they picked up on this trend and had mm-hmm. been tracking it for several years. Mm-hmm. And they had also begun tracking, recognized the relationship and began tracking prescribing and death rate. And I asked them for that data. And then I ran a correlation coefficient on the data. Correlation coefficient mm-hmm. is a measure of the, what they call the linear relationship between two variables. So if one goes up, does the other go up? And how much mathematically, how closely can you predict how much it goes up? And so if variables are very closely related, you get a correlation coefficient close to 1.0. That's the highest you can have. Mm-hmm. If they happen to be going opposite directions, but still very predictable, it's a minus one. You know, you very, very rarely see coalition coefficients close to one or minus one because most variables that people are interested in are not that strongly related because other things. There's other factors involved. Yeah. Yeah. There are other factors. There are always other factors. So that's in a very, very high correlation. Mm -hmm. Now, anybody who talks about correlations is almost required to say that correlation does not establish causation. Just because variables are correlated doesn't mean there's a causation, a causal relationship. Between mm-hmm. And the correlation between per capita prescribing and per capita death rate was 0.979, almost a perfect correspondence. Wow. I mean, it was amazing. I called my friend Norman Hall and told him that, left him a voice message. Mm. And as soon as I hung up the phone, I thought, that's impossible. I did that calculation wrong. I've never seen a calculator. You know, I've been in, at that point, I've been in psychology for 30 years mm-hmm. or something, and, you know, starting in graduate school, and I'd never seen a correlation coefficient that high. And he got my message, and he told his son, who was a pre-med student, who would understand the mathematics of it, Joe Gay thinks he found a correlation of 0.979. He says, that's bull. You know that, don't you? And they both got a big laugh out of it. Huh. But it was true. I ran it yeah. again. He ran it. That's You can calculate a quantity, a number of milligrams of opiates prescribed in Ohio. And for every that many milligrams prescribed, you can predict another death. And you won't be far off. So, yeah, it was one overdose death for every two months of opioids uh, prescribed. Yeah, but I I can't back up that number that he quoted, but that sort of relationship exists. Take us to the point where this got Sam's attention because... You know, you're seeing a lot going on. And what made him track you down to, you know, he's researching this book, so he needs people. He's looking at probably a lot of different candidates. Why did he zero in on you, doctor? He became interested in Ohio. Mm -hmm. His trail started with heroin. And he'd heard about the heroin epidemic in Ohio. 
And so he started tracking that down. And he actually, I believe, started in Columbus. That's where he picked up the trail. Mm -hmm. But then as he began asking people and, you know, asking experts, um, they talked about parts of the state where there was particularly a big problem. And they mentioned Portsmouth and they mentioned um, the Athens area. And so he called the local mental health and recovery board and said, you know, I'm an author. He was, he was writing his articles for the Los Angeles times. Then that was, this is before the book. Yeah. So he called the mental health and recovery board, asked him if, you know, they had some information and the director of that board said, well, Joe Gay's really interested in data. You might call the Joe Gay. He might be able to give you some data. Mm. So that's how Sam happened to call me. And, he had heard that there was a relationship between the heroin use and the pills, and he was starting to look into that. So in our first interview, that's one of the things he talked to me about. Then he began to develop that relationship, his story about the relationship between pills and heroin. It started, as my understanding is he got on the trail, he was first on the trail of heroin because of his interest in Jalisco. And right. Right. And, <clears throat> and he'd done research in and Mexico yeah, before. Yeah. Sure. And so mm-hmm. he followed the heroin to Ohio. Mm-hmm. And when he got here, the trail led to pills. Mm-hmm. But yeah. have you been here in your community exposed a little bit to the heroin side? No, no, and no. The now, now no? see, at, that, at the point he called me, yeah. we were seeing lots of pills and some heroin. Mm-hmm. But by 2009, the heroin problem was serious enough that a colleague from Ohio University and I published a article in a national newsletter. Not a, it wasn't a peer reviewed publication, but it was an article in a newsletter mm-hmm. saying in rural, certain rural areas, Appalachia, yeah. we are seeing a marked increase in heroin use. And we wonder if this could be a broader trend. I mean, it had been, Become a, the heroin itself had become alarming enough, even though it was probably half of what we see now. It had still become alarming enough that we decided we would publish something about it. I mean, and then <clears throat> fast forwarding a little bit, legislation yeah. is passed, House Bill ninety three, yeah, in two thousand and eleven, yeah, shutting down your pill mills, yeah. What was the impact of that here? It was a good first step, but it was a drop in the bucket. Because the problem as it spread statewide was not just a problem of pill mills. It was a problem of overprescribing of this. Now, there has been, as pills have become less available, people, some people have moved to heroin. But I think there is an argument. There are people who say, Oh, if you cut off the supply of pills, people are going to turn to heroin. And there's some right. truth to that. And, but unless we markedly reduce the supply of pills, more and more and more people are going to get addicted to heroin. Can you speak for just a minute to uh, the question of um, a, just people having a propensity to for addiction? They say the addiction gene. Can anybody get addicted to opioids? Anybody can get physically dependent on opioids. Anybody who is given a dose 
can develop a physical dependency on it. But that does not constitute an addiction. It just means they're going to be sick if they quit suddenly. So some people could take it, quit it and get sick, but they would be just fine with quitting. They wouldn't like being sick, but they wouldn't have any sort of craving or desire to take the drug. Okay. So, so afterwards they would, they would be miserable. You know, they, they took the thing for, you know, uh, opioids, a prescription yeah. and, and took it for two months and then quit cold turkey. And one guy that becomes addicted is going to be, you know, he's going to be just jonesing for it and, yeah. gonna, you know, be a danger to, to, you know, start yeah. using again. The other guy though, with a different wired brain, if you will, uh, could be just fine and never even think yeah. about it again. Yeah. Just think about, was, oh, this is crazy was, that I even did if that. If he was tapered off mm-hmm. of it, he wouldn't even get sick. Yeah. yeah. And he would do fine with the taper. He'd be, he might even not follow his prescription and, Reduces dose faster than he was told to sure. or something, you know, but that's a different wired brain than a person who would get addicted. So and of the two, two personalities there, what percent would be prone to addiction? If you had, I to- would say somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to 20% of the population. Okay. Roughly speaking. Mm-hmm. Now, any, almost anything that common sense would tell you would make a person more prone, probably does. So having a history of addiction in your family, a genetic link, makes you more prone. Um, Having trauma in your life makes you more prone. There appears to be a relationship to poverty. You know, people who are in a constant struggle with life seem to be more prone. People with a mental illness, particularly people with depression or anxiety are probably more prone. Any of those things add a little bit of a few percentage points to the probability you might be addicted. There is not because we're dealing with a new generation of opiate addicts and heroin addicts, which we've only really in this area in Ohio been seeing this for less than 20 years. There's really not the kind of sample you need for longitudinal studies. Yeah. But we know from studies on alcohol that genetics play a really strong point part in addiction. What are the I, things that really our listeners need to know okay. about this, about the okay. state? I mean, I think we've got about five different maps of the state, and you've got it laid out really well, color-coded uh, by county. And uh, so it, it does give you a visual in terms of where the, the highest concentration of issues are for us. And so can you lead us through yeah. that? I think, I think that if you look at the first map mm-hmm. and the last map. Okay. Because we have, we have a problem that was really concentrated in eight counties. Seven of those counties had had heroin problems for years. They were urban counties. Which which counties were we that would have been to? Montgomery County, Franklin County, uh, Cuyahoga, Summit, and then um, is that Ross? You think uh, Ross? Steubenville, Steubenville, oh, Steubenville. And the adjacent okay. County. You know, yeah. mm-hmm. okay, those counties have had heroin problems for years and years and years, and then Sauda mm-hmm. County was showing up even in 2001 with a pill problem. 
the national surveys where they survey, you know, how many people use drugs didn't even count heroin users because it was so rare. Hmm. Okay. So we went from that to a point at which almost every county in the state is impacted. This is not basically a matter of willpower. I think that would be the next important point I would make. And then the other point I would make is how people get started, what the process is. That most people, 85% of the people in our society have tried alcohol at some point. That's just normal. Sure. It's abnormal to have never had a drink. Mm-hmm. About half the people in our society have smoked marijuana at some point. So it's not at all unusual to have smoked marijuana. Sure. If you are of a mind to enjoy something, some substance changing your mood, it's a pretty short step to taking a pill. If you ask people on the street, is heroin dangerous? Most people will go, yeah, it's dangerous. Of course, of course it's yeah. dangerous. Sure. You know, but there is not that level of fear about prescription pills. No. Now, more people, because of particularly, you know, efforts like the state's making, efforts like you're making to make it clear how dangerous it is, more and more people recognize pills as being dangerous. But over the last 10 or 15 years, most people would not have considered prescription drugs particularly dangerous. The point I'm making is it's not that people choose to become drug addicts. They do what everybody does, which is drink a little, smoke a little pot. Mm -hmm. And at some point, there's something else that looks like it might be fun, and they do that a little bit. But it's not because they're setting out to be drug addicts. Yeah. And once they do that, those who are prone to get sucked into it. Sure. So it's been about two years since uh, you uh, last sat down with Sam. Yeah, probably finished up your interviews. Yeah, chatting with him every now and then since the book came out. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but. So since that time, what's happened? What's what's tell us a little bit about after Dreamland. The problem has continued to get worse, although not at the rate it was getting worse before Dreamland. I don't know. I'm not saying that Dreamland changed that, but the timing but, thing. Whatever. But still, yeah, part but of the, the story. The certainly. problem has continued to get worse. The problem, though, has received much more attention, and many more people are aware of the problem and have some reasonable degree of understanding of the problem. And Dreamland has had a major impact in that respect. So he has really, really helped educate people about it. And that has helped. There are many more people who understand this. It makes people more receptive to the ideas of treatment and supporting treatment. It helps by his portrayal of how people get sucked into this, I think it helps provide support for programs like Project Dawn, which can really save lives. Mm. So, Doctor, how do we get out of this mess? Um, I think we have to continue. I, I think that we need to continue to try to reduce 
the supply of prescription opiates. How do we do that? By restrictions, by regulation. I'll put it that legislation. Way. That's that's legislation. Yeah. Now, what I'm saying is controversial. A lot of people won't agree with it. You know, but I just don't think there's any other way to reduce the recruitment of addicts. In terms of the treatment aspect of it, um, can you comment on the continuity of care or lack thereof when it comes to treating substance use disorder? It, it varies from place to place, even sometimes from organization to organization. It is a challenge. There is still a problem with adequate resources. System we developed for treating alcoholism, which was by far the most common addiction other than cigarette smoking. <laughs> but anyway, the most common addiction that disrupted lives was alcoholism. And it was treatable as an acute disorder. There was a very good infrastructure for sustaining treatment once the person was treated for the acute disorder. That infrastructure for sustaining recovery was AA. AA right. You know, founded so, in Akron, Ohio. Yeah. And so the model of acute treatment worked pretty well because if the treatment was successful, they were handed off to AA or got involved in AA. And some people just started with AA. So, but at any rate, so that model worked, but it doesn't work as well for opiates. There's not a strong support system for opiate addicts, and they're much more likely to need ongoing treatment in the form of medication-assisted treatment. And so we're still very much in, I would say, almost turmoil about how to best treat opiate addicts. I, th I think medication-assisted treatment is absolutely necessary. So I'm going to jump back a little bit to an earlier discussion we had about uh, legislation. Yeah. Is there any particular thing in mind, any legislation that you have in mind that you feel would really be uh, a, a big game changer here? Okay. The biggest right now is preserving Medicaid. It, within the state system, many people are treated through the state system of treatment, state-funded treatment, either through Medicaid or other allocations for addiction treatment. One of the reasons for that is that the commercial insurance companies have kind of walked away from addiction treatment, even though they're supposed to, under the law, be providing it. Many of them find ways to circumvent that. Mm -hmm. So, so anyway, so many, many people receiving treatment are receiving treatment supported by Medicaid. And Medicaid is very much under threat through, uh, through efforts to reverse the Affordable Care Act and potentially through state level actions to reduce Medicaid. So I think for preserving the treatment system. That is the very most important thing. 
Well, doctor, this has really been enlightening. I want to yeah. thank you for yeah, your sure. time today. Yeah. Uh, any final thoughts for our listeners? Um, have hope. Hope for the individuals. Hope that we will eventually overcome this. Vigilance, too. <laughs> yeah. Well, once again, thank you so yeah. much. We've been visiting today with Dr. Joe Gay, who is the clinical psychologist, as well as a licensed chemical dependence professional. He's the executive director of uh, the Health Recovery Services uh, in Athens, Ohio, and it's been a pleasure. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm the founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this special edition of the Cover 2 PPT series. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.